0: This time, Dr. James Kennedy of the pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, will bring his message to us. Good evening. It is a great delight to be here on this most auspicious occasion of the first General Assembly of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Now that has a nice ring to it, don't you think? The Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We've been needing something like that for a long time, haven't we? (laughs) It was inspiring to see all of these young men ordained to um, see my old friend Cal Gray, uh, ordained as your moderator, and to be in this beautiful church, Dr. Bartlett Hess, and to hear the wonderful choir. This is indeed a most auspicious occasion. And as a um, a minister at uh, last hearing in good standing in the Presbyterian Church in America, when I was called by Dr. Scotchmer and invited to come to uh, speak here, I uh, said I was delighted to hear that uh, the churches were taking a stand for the gospel. I said, may I inquire why you decided not to join the Presbyterian Church in America, which is what just about everybody's doing these days. Orthodox Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians, everybody's joining the Presbyterian Church in America. And he told me that it had something to do with a question about women. <laughs> um, women elders. Well, now, I got a call the other day. And somebody called me long distance. And they said, I understand you're going to be speaking at the General Assembly of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I said, yes, that's, that's the way I understand it, too. And they said, but isn't that the church that ordains women? And I said, I think that that's the one. (laughs) And they said, well, how can you do that? I said, well, I uh, have always taken as a motto what Pascal said. in essentials unity, and non essentials liberty, and all things charity. That's a very good motto, I think. I, we solved the the, the problem of women elders in our church many, many years ago in in a rather unique way. Uh, I thought you ought to be aware of of that. Um, I told them that we would be glad to have any women that wanted to be elders. I said there there was one stipulation, however, and that is that I would always refer to them as the elder Mrs. Jones. You know that in 22 years, we've never had one volunteer. <laughs> Seriously, I, I am uh, rejoicing in your, in your stand for the gospel. I am sad that you could not find it to uh, come and join with us and uh, reverse the trend towards uh, splintering and join the evangelical Christians, Presbyterians anyway. Together, But so much for that. I'm delighted to be here. You are a new church. And um, one question that should be in the minds of, of a new church is what does God want you to do now? Where do you go from here? What ought you to be about? And that's what I would like to discuss with you this evening. God's purpose for his church for you as a new denomination in the uh, body of Christ. Uh, and is probably not what you have in mind that God wants your church to do, at least not entirely. It will certainly be in part for all of you. But, you know, I think that lay people often come to church year after year and they hear the preacher say that they're supposed to do this and then they're supposed to do that and then there's this thing and that and the other and this one. And they go home and uh, sometimes they just get confused. It's quite obvious that denominations are confused about what God would have them to do. You don't have to survey the scene very long to ascertain that. And I used to wonder myself, wouldn't it be nice if God somewhere said it concisely, succinctly, and simply, precisely what he wanted us to do? And uh, I thought that would be so helpful. And I looked for it. And after some considerable searching, I finally found it. And where did I find it? I found it in the very first words that God ever spake to the human race. We know it as the cultural mandate. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 and it contains within it, I believe, three points which include within them the totality of all that God wants you as a denomination, you as a church, you as a pastor, or you as an individual Christian layman to do. I have challenged others on occasion to consider this. And I've said, if there's something that God wants us to do that's not in there, now obviously since this is just a very brief passage, that it's going to have to be in rather uh, germinal form. But if there's something that God wants us to do that's not in there, I would like to know what it is. And I have yet to be told anything that's not in there. So uh, I'm encouraged to think that it's all right there. I remember telling a young pastor this in, in a meeting in St. Louis a number of months ago. He started writing it down, and first thing you know, he got so excited, I think he rushed right home to prepare a sermon on the subject. So what are those three points as to what God wants us to do? Well, you remember the cultural mandate, as it's found there. It begins when God says, and it begins with those words, by the way, and God said. And uh, that's where this church is taking its stand, and that's what Dr. Uh, Schaefer is going to be speaking to you tonight, tomorrow, about tomorrow night, Uh, the Word of God as it relates to the church. I'm delighted to hear that. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So quite evidently in this very brief passage of three verses, the first thing that God wants is that he wanted and still wants creatures made in his image. That was quite obvious because that's what he said he wanted to do, and that is indeed what he did. He created two creatures in his image, and we know that he commanded them to produce other creatures in his image, But instead of doing that, they sinned and rebelled against God and plunged the human race into sin. And we read in the fifth chapter of Genesis that Adam brought forth sons and daughters in his own image, in the marred and fallen image of Adam. Now, true that man still retains some vestige of the image of God, but that has been grossly distorted. It's somewhat like a Cadillac coming off the assembly line here in, uh, in Detroit. I guess that's where they make Cadillacs. They still do make cars in this city, don't they? Now, <laughs> now and again. Uh, and they drive it off the assembly line. It goes a couple hundred miles out in the country and off the side of the road over a cliff and 200 feet down below it hits the rocks. Now, that is still a Cadillac, but somehow It's different. (laughs) Well, that's the way we are born into this world. We still have the image of God, but it's badly bent, marred, and defaced. So therefore, if we are going to be recreated into the image of God, it's going to be done by the power of the gospel. It is the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God to transform men and to restore to them the image of God." It is the euangelium, it is the ev- evangel, which will be proclaimed by the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. By the way, of these three points, I think if we notice church- churches carefully, the three things that God wants, we'll notice that there are some churches that do none of them, other churches that do one of them, more churches or Fewer churches that do two, and even fewer churches that do all three. But if you want to get home and have done the job right, you have to touch all of the bases to do what God said he wanted us to do. So we have to proclaim the gospel, and that is the first task of the Church of Jesus Christ, and that's why I rejoice in the title, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It is a church which is centered in the gospel, The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a gospel of justification by faith, which is the standing or falling doctrine of the church. And uh, that means that the gospel as contained in the word and the entire word of God is to be preached. And of course, we need to be transformed, to be renewed, to be born again. But of course, that is simply the first blow of the hammer applied to the fender in the repair shop There's a lot more that has to be done, and that involves the whole process of sanctification, that continual restoration into the image of God before the whole automobile is restored. Of course, in this life, it will never be perfectly restored, but that involves, of course, sanctification, the whole educational process, are all involved in the first thing, that God wants creatures made into and more and more conformed to his image. Now, as you know, there are many churches in our land today, some of which you just parted company with, who fail to ever touch first base. And from their pulpits, the gospel of salvation is never heard. And there are people that sit in the pews of those churches and may sit there for 90 years and never find out how they may have eternal life. I talked to a man who was a member of a church for 105 years, and he had not yet the gospel to understand it but at 105 years of age that man came to understand the glorious gospel of Christ the second point in the cultural mandate is God says to them be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth or fill the earth God did not want simply a pair of creatures made in his image, but he wanted a whole world full of creatures made in his image. Now, originally, that could have been done by ordinary generation, by procreation, biologically. But after the fall of man, that no longer was possible. They brought forth creatures biologically into the fallen in the fallen nature of Adam as we have said. So now it has to be done spiritually, not with the corrupted sperm seed of man, but with the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And therefore, all of us who have been fashioned into the image of God are to be spiritual, to be fruitful, rather, and to multiply the New Testament of course, enshrines this in the Great Commission to go and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, this is not the responsibility just of the pastor or the preacher. It's not a matter of letting clerical George do it. It is the responsibility of every single person who has been transformed into the image of God. It is responsibility of every Christian, and therefore it is the responsibility of the church to equip the saints to do that. Ephesians 4 tells it that God gave the pastor teacher for the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. Now, though there are many churches where the gospel is not preached from the pulpit, it is also sadly true that even among the majority of churches where the gospel is preached from the pulpit, the saints of God are not adequately trained and equipped to do the work of ministry and most of the Christians are not fruitful and are not multiplying. 15 years ago, a nationwide survey indicated that 90% plus of the church members in America had never won anyone to Christ. Now that figure has gone down tremendously in the last 15 years because of the emphasis that has been placed upon this, but I am still quite certain that the majority of the members of the Presbyterian Church in America And may I be so bold to say, probably the majority of the members of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church have never won anybody to Christ. And pastor, teacher, God gave you to them to equip them to do it. You might ask yourself the question right now, if God took you away, how many saints would there be equipped to do and actually engaged in doing the work of ministry which includes the cutting edge of evangelism of spiritually multiplying and being fruitful and filling the earth with creatures made in the image of God. Now, if you want to have your denomination be a, a success, if you want to have it do what God wants you to do, then I strongly urge you, I appeal to you to train your lay people to learn how to evangelize other people. There is a desperate need in the world for that today. And as you can see, we begin to progress downward. There are more churches that preach the gospel, though there are many, probably the majority of them in the country don't do that. There are fewer churches that train their people. That brings us to the third point or the third base, and that is God says, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. God has called us to be the vicegerents of God upon this earth, his representatives here on this world, and that he calls us to take all of the tremendous potentialities that God has built into this world, into the natural world and into the societal world, and we are to take these and we are to improve upon them and we are to perfect them and we are to offer them up to the glory of God. Now, you know, it's, it's interesting that there are many churches that have proclaimed the gospel and even have trained their laypeople to preach the gospel, but they've never gone beyond that. And they've never seen the fact that they're not fulfilling what God wants them to do. I had this brought home to me years ago. We had a debate on the beach in Fort Lauderdale between a Christian minister and an atheist. And the college students were down there. That's uh, when all the students gather Down there, you remember they made a picture about it where the boys are, you remember that? It was interesting, about that time, one of the athletic clubs, the the, uh, weightlifting places in Fort Lauderdale had a big sign on the side of their building that said, where the men are. (laughs) (coughs) Well. At any rate, after this debate, I was, found myself talking to about a dozen college students who were rank unbelievers, atheists and whatever. And one of these young atheists said to me, well, what is the purpose of the Christian life? And at that point, I had not gone, gotten beyond second base. And I said, well, you know, we are to, we are to preach the gospel, we're to witness to others, and we're to win them to Jesus Christ and uh, they in turn are to win others to Christ, and and so on. He said, I see, you you become a Christian, and then you get other people to become Christians, and then they get other people to become Christians, and then they they get other people to become Christians. He said, but what's the purpose of the whole lot of you? I thought, now that's a very incisive question. (laughs) And you know, I had talked to people myself, and I'd I'd asked them, what is your purpose in life? And they had said, well, I'm living for my children. Now, that sounds very pious, doesn't it? And then it's an interesting thing that children grow up and you ask them, what are they living for? You know what they tell you? They're living for their children. And they're living for their children. And they're living for their children. But the question must inevitably arise, what are all of them living for? If the whole chain has no purpose, then the individual links have no purpose. And the whole thing is an exercise in futility and vanity. So we need to go from the individual link, that we are to preach the gospel and a person is to be converted, to the chain that they are to be fruitful and multiply abundantly, to the purpose of the chain, what we're all here for and that is to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, and to offer all things unto the glory of God. You know, Christians, for the most part, have been in a pietistic retreat for the last uh, 75 or 100 years, which means that we've retreated back to first or second base, and we've let the world alone. We have retreated from higher education. We have retreated... uh, by the way, the first 123 colleges and universities founded in this country were for the purpose of the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, etc, cetera. Read the, uh, the reasons for the formation of Harvard and Yale and Princeton and all of those schools. We retreated from that and turned it over for the most part to unbelievers. We retreated from science, which began as a Christian handmaiden to theology to lead men to God, and they've formed it into the most formidable weapon used against Christianity today. We've retreated from, the, from, the, from music, and look what it has turned into a veritable cacophony of discord. We have retreated from the art, and look what we have, modern art and uh, all of the other various forms of uh, that abomination. We have retreated from government. And uh, look what has happened there. Somebody said to me one time, do you think that Christians ought to get involved in politics? I said, of course not. We ought to leave it to the atheists and the unbelievers. Otherwise, what would we have to complain about? (laughs) And we'd really rather sit back and complain than get out there and do anything about it. I, of course, am being facetious. But we have retreated from the media for the most part, from television, from the motion pictures. And what has happened? Unbelievers have come into all of these areas and all of these spheres and many others, and they have taken the potentialities which God Almighty has built, it, built into them, and they have improved them, and they've perfected them, and they've offered them up to their father, the devil. If you doubt that, go to a movie tomorrow night, day after tomorrow night. choose one at random and you will notice that it is an oblation on the altar of Satan but you know Christians are not supposed to retreat there's no armor on the back of the Christian's armor It's onward, Christian soldiers. Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But we've gotten the idea that what we hope is that the, the doors of the church will prevail against the world coming in upon us. And so we have retreated into our little Christian ghettos. But it's forward march. It is the offense that we're to be on, not the defense. And I thank God that Christians are beginning to wake up to that, and they're beginning to move out into the various spheres of life, and I thank the Lord for that. I heard, for example, about uh, the CBN, uh, Pat Robertson's uh, school, I don't know exactly what the name of it is, but it's a school for communications where they teach television, they've got all the most incredibly advanced equipment there, it's uh, quite a place to see that he is telling all of those people to go into the secular media. Don't go into the Christian stations, but go into the secular media. Now, I don't happen to agree with everything that they believe, but I think that's fantastic that they're getting Christians out there. There need to be Christians in the newspapers, and there need to be Christians in the television, and in the newsrooms of the television, and Christians writing scripts for movies and all of this sort of thing. We've left that all to the unbelievers. And you know, too many times the Christian young people are choosing positions where there's the most money to be made, not where they can have the greatest influence for Jesus Christ. We need to challenge our young people to get out there and have an impact for Christ in the world. In every sphere, we need to challenge our young people to get into government. Well, now, right away, there are those that are going to raise the specter of the separation and state, and are we not treading on incredibly thin ice now? Well, let me tell you, my friends, I believe that there are some ominous tendencies at work in our country today and in our world, and uh, there are three of them that I would like to mention to you. The first one is this. There is a broad in our nation, and I would venture to say conservatively, It has been accepted by 90 to 95% of the people in this country and perhaps far more. There is a distortion of the meaning of the First Amendment and the relationship of the state and the church as it was intended to be in the Constitution of the United States. There is such a distortion that it has been twisted around 180 degrees and that 90% of the people in America today believe the exact opposite of what the First Amendment teaches. And you don't have to do very much reading to come across innumerable examples that testify to this fact. I had a, a man, an editor from Newsweek, call me about, uh, oh, about this time, a year ago. You know what was happening about this time a year ago. And he said to me, called long distance, and he said, I hear that you have uh, been making a number of statements about uh, about uh, the Bible and government and God in and government and, uh, and that sort of thing. And I said, uh, matter of fact, I have. Uh, I said, you know we have an election coming up, a national election. I think you find almost everybody in the country's been making some statements about uh, government, uh, recently, and he said, and I said, why are you calling me? And he said, well, we believe in the separation of church and state. I said, you may believe in it, my friend, but I think you've got it completely upside down, and I don't think you have a clue as to what it means. Well, now, that's not the way to make points with the (laughs) Newsweek editor. (laughs) He said, what do you mean? So I told him this. I said, what does the First Amendment teach? And By the way, I was uh, at another city last year, and I was speaking uh, about on a national affairs platform in a civic auditorium. And there were a number of people picketing it. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite things to do, you know, you have some people like to go sailing and skating. One of my favorite things to do is talk to pickets. <laughs> That's very interesting. If you've never done that, you should try it. There was a, there was a young man, I would say he was about 22 or 3, and he was picketing with a sign. It said, uh, a wall of separation between church and state. I went up to him and I read his sign very carefully. And I said, that's an interesting idea. I said, where did you get that? And he looked at me like I was some sort of a cretin that uh, had just crawled out from under a rock somewhere. And he said, the First Amendment. There was sort of a pause there. You know he wanted to say dummy. But he restrained himself. And I said, oh, oh, the First Amendment. Hmm. I read it again. I said, you know, that's interesting. I said, I didn't know the First Amendment said anything about a wall. I said, I didn't even know it said anything about separation. In fact, the matter, I I didn't even know it said anything about the church. I said, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know it said anything about the state. He said, it doesn't. I said, no, none of those things. He said, well, what does it say? (laughs) I said, well, it's your sign. You tell me. (laughs) So I told him, finally, what it says is this, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or forbidding the free exercise thereof." Unquote. Did you notice the subject of the two actions? Let me repeat it. Congress, underline, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or forbidding the free exercise thereof. Question. What does the First Amendment say about what the church should do? About what it shouldn't do? About what Christians should do or shouldn't do or can do or can't do? Nothing. Nothing at all. And that, my friends, is a very vital point that Christians better wake up to because the liberties of Christians are being taken away in this country today because of the vast ignorance of the foundation of our rights and liberties as Christians in this country. The First Amendment is a one-way street. Well, where do we get the idea of a wall of separation between church and state? Well, that comes from a private letter written by Thomas Jefferson in 1802 to the Danbury Baptists of Connecticut. By the way, this was 13 years after the First Amendment had been ratified. Jefferson had nothing to do with writing the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. He had nothing to do with writing the Constitution. He wasn't even at the Constitutional Convention. He was in Paris when the First Amendment was ratified. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. But The Baptists and the Congregationalists in Connecticut had given Jefferson a hard time when he ran for president. They had accused him of being a skeptic and an infidel and other nice things that they said about him. And he didn't like that, and so he wrote them a rather hot letter telling them, in effect, to stay in their place. And where was their place? Well, there should be a wall of separation between the church and state. And if this is the state, what we're going to do is build a wall right across here, and all you Christians can stay behind your wall and just keep out of our business over here, and that'll be fine. Now you see, maybe you don't see the difference. But the point is that the idea of the separation of church and state has come to the minds of most Americans to be what the First Amendment teaches, and it is not. I'll say it again. The First Amendment does not teach the separation of the church and state. Thomas Jefferson did in a private letter. And if you don't see the difference, you better find out quickly what it is. The difference is the First Amendment is a one-way street, and a wall of separation is a two-way blockade. A wall prohibits those on this side from going over there as much as it prohibits those on this side from going over there. Now that's a two-way street. But the First Amendment was a one-way street. It only restrained the Congress. I remember an atheistic uh, talk show host where I'd been on the program in Miami got a hold of this that I'd said. And to him, this was the most ludicrous idea he'd ever heard, that the First Amendment was a one-way street and it didn't apply to the church as much as it did to the government. He said that was just the most ridiculous thing that he'd ever heard. Now, you wonder how a person could be so unaware of the history of the founding of this country. Why was the, were the Bill of Rights, was the Bill of Rights passed? Why were the first 10 amendments passed? It's because people so feared the new federal government that they wanted to further tie down this Gulliver and restrain it because they feared the powers of a tyrannical federal government which they'd known in Europe. And they wanted to protect the liberties of the people. And they wouldn't accept the Constitution without the rights of the people and the liberties of the people being further protected by a Bill of Rights. And if you think that a one-way street is preposterous, consider the freedom of the press. The Constitution restrains the government from interfering with the freedom of the press. Well, now since, according to our atheistic talk show host, that can't be a one-way street, it must be a two-way street, then that obviously means that the press can't say anything about the government either. You've never read anything about the government in the press, have you? (laughs) I mean, that would be a one-way street, just the other way. Well, of course, all of the amendments restrain the government and not the liberties of the people. But that has been turned into a two-way street. And if that's not bad enough, in the last several years, it's been turned all the way around 180 degrees and diametrically the opposite direction. And if you doubt that, ask yourself this question. In the last two or three years, when you have heard the subject being discussed of the separation of church and state, think, what was being discussed? And I'll venture to wager if I were a wagering man, that 98% of the time what was being discussed is what the church should or shouldn't do, what Christians could or couldn't do. Is that not true? It's turned completely around. And the shackles that the founding fathers put on the federal government have been thrown off, and they are now busily putting them on the church. If you doubt that. Rush Dooney called me a f- couple of months ago and told me about 80 churches in California that had been taken over by the government. And uh, half of them had already been auctioned off. Why? Well, because they refused to uh, follow the, the rules that the government was laying down for them. And the government had established what a church was, and these people wouldn't uh, concur with that. And so they closed them down, evangelical churches. I have a letter on my desk to the mayor of uh, Los Angeles, I believe it is. And uh, someone wrote to him, a Christian, and said, I would, I'm thinking about moving into your city. But uh, if I do that, I would like to uh, hold uh, a Bible studies and a prayer meeting in my home. And I wanted to check and see if that was uh, OK. Now I have a letter on my desk. Uh, the letterhead of the mayor's office and his signature and he says in effect no. That will violate their ordinances, their zoning ordinances and you can't do that. It's in your place Christians and that place is getting narrower all the time. This week in Fort Lauderdale the Broward County Commission passed a law requiring the licensing of Christian schools, wholly owned and operated by churches. Now if they can license your Christian schools on, on Friday, why can't they license them on Sunday? Now if they can extend the license, they can withdraw the license. The shackles are being taken off the government and they're being placed on the church. And the tragic thing is that there are all sorts of Christians that are egging them on out of pure ignorance. Now, the Constitution doesn't teach the separation of church and state. That was taught by an infidel. What it teaches is the separation of the state from the church. And that is being lost today at the danger of losing the freedoms of Christians. We better be aware of that. Another ominous tendency that is going on today is the fact that we are seeing the establishment of a religion in this country. In contradistinction to the First Amendment, while everywhere Christians, their effort is being made to Efface all evidence of Christianity in this nation and uh, every vestige of Christianity in public life, while that is going on apace, there is at the same time there has gone on to the point of completion the establishment of a religion in the United States. Do You know that now, contrary to the First Amendment, we have an established religion in America? It is the religion of secular humanism. I read an article in Time Magazine recently, in a recent, very recent issue. And they said that secular humanism was something that had been invented by fundamentalist ministers in the mid-70s as a, as a boogeyman to blame all of the troubles of our country upon. And I thought, how could anybody be that uninformed. And I don't believe it's conceivable that that man could really be that ignorant of the matter and be an editor at Time Magazine. So I will have to assume that he is really trying to deceive people. You know, where was he when the Humanist Manifesto was published in 1933? Where was he when the 1973 second Humanist Manifesto was published? Where was he? when the Supreme Court in 1961 declared humanism to be a religion? Where was he when the American Humanist Association was formed? Where was he when the publication of the Humanist magazine started? This is utterly ridiculous. I subscribe to the Humanist, the official magazine of the American Humanist Association, and uh, I assure you it's not published by Jerry Falwell. That is undoubtedly the most incredibly uh, uninformed, and that's the nicest thing that I can say about it, statement that I have ever heard. Humanism has been around for some time, and it is a religion. And what do I base that statement? Well, the Humanist Manifesto of 1933, signed by such notables as John Dewey, nine times declares that humanism is a religion. The dictionary defines humanism as a religion. The president of the American Humanist Association wrote a book as Humanism as a Religion. And furthermore, the Supreme Court in 1961 in Torcaso versus Watkins and another decision declare that humanism is a religion. Among religions, non-theistic religions in in America are, they said, Buddhism, Taoism, ethical culture, secular humanism, and others, unquote. Torcaso versus Watkins. Secular humanism is a religion. You don't have to believe in, in God to have a religion. Buddhism doesn't believe in God, but they have a religion. Taoism doesn't believe in God, but it is a religion. Religion is the ultimate concern of people. And the humanists declare that humanism, secular humanism is going to become the new world religion, and it will replace and supplant all other religions of the world. And it is an exceedingly intolerant religion. It will not tolerate any visibility in the public sector of this country of any other religion besides secular humanism. It is established because it is taught in virtually every public school in America from the first grade through graduate school in uh, some or all of its tenets. And the tenets of humanism begin with atheism. They declare themselves to be non-theists. Now, a non-theist is nothing other than, than an atheist. It means exactly the same thing. No deity will save us, they declare. We must save ourselves. We find insufficient proof of any supernatural. They are atheists, and atheism is spreading at great speed in the world today through secular humanism, and your children are being indoctrinated in it in the public schools. They... Secondly, they believe in evolution. Since there is no god to have created the world, obviously the world is here. It must have evolved from the primordial slime. And so they are strong adherents of uh, evolution, and uh, which is uh, really very interesting. I don't know if you know or not, but the, the central tenet of evolution has virtually uh, crumbled beneath the evolutionist feet in the last uh, year. Uh, and that is the, the basic concept of evolution that, that by micro mutations, very slowly and gradually species have changed little by little from one species to another all the way up the ladder from amoeba to man. Did you know that uh, last October in the Field Museum in Chicago, leading evolutionists from all over the world met in conference and they received papers and heard papers from Dr. Stephen J. Gould of Harvard and uh, from the head of the uh, American Museum of Natural History stating that it has been well known by uh, biologists and uh, paleoanthropologists for years that there are no gradual transitions, that this has been the inside trade secret of anthropologists that species are constant and they do not change and that there are no intermediates and that this has been known and kept secret from the public for years. It's time that they admitted that this was so and that they have come out with a new version which they, you remember, some of you may recall back in 1940, the famous geneticist from the University of California at Berkeley by the name of Goldschmidt came out with a view called, The hopeful monster theory. Goldschmidt spent all of his life trying to find all of the intermediate species, and he finally concluded they're not there. After a hundred years of searching, he said if we can't find them, we have to assume they're not there. We have hundreds of millions of fossils today. We can't rely on Darwin's statement of of the paucity of the fossil record. And so he came up with a theory which he called the hopeful monster theory. The hopeful monster theory simply says that one day a lizard laid an egg and a bird flew out. No intermediates, no nascent organs, no incipient wings, just a sudden emergence of a new species. So you have separate discrete species. How many hundreds of millions of times have students been told for the last century and a quarter that there have been gradual transitions and that that they have these transitions and they can show them to them and all of that sort of thing, which is a bunch of hogwash, and now they have admitted it. Well, of course, what happened to Goldschmidt's view? It was laughed at. You know, hopeful monster is not exactly what you call the parlance of science. <laughs> that just uh, was destined that it uh, wasn't going to play in Peoria or in Harvard. <clears throat> and so it sort of lay dormant for a while. But then Gould of Harvard, who was a very prestigious evolutionist, uh, finally uh, broke the bombshell. But he came up with a new theory, which he has tried to separate from Goldschmidt's view, which he calls Punctuated equilibria, now that's got class. (laughs) That's science. But when you find out what punctuated equilibria is, you find out that it is exactly, virtually the same thing that Goldschmidt had, and that is that there are no intermediate forms, that natural selection has nothing to do with evolution, and that species have been fixed and they remain unchanged, and the jumps come in great sudden leaps. From one species to another. I want to tell you this, there is practically nobody in the world today that would buy that if they heard it for the first time like that. At least Darwin's theory had a sort of a plausibility about it. This is absurd. And yet this is where they have been brought by the evidence. The central tenet of evolution has crumbled and the vast majority of the scientists at the Field Museum accepted this. Gould says that virtually all of the The scientists in Russia accept it, and it's spreading worldwide. Well, it's going to take a while for the edifice to come down on top of it, but my friends, there are cracks in the foundation that cannot be ignored. And yet, this is the pillar of secular humanism. We might ask if creation is a tenet of Christianity and can't be taught, why should evolution, which is the pillar of the religion of secular humanism, be allowed to be taught in our schools? Beyond Evolution, atheism and evolution, secular humanism also teaches amorality. Since there, there is no God to legislate, there is no lawgiver in Zion, man must create his own morality. And so that is an amoral situational type of ethics which finally boils down to if it feels good, do it. You know, it's interesting that uh, well over a 100 years ago, the, the great the French orientalist and scholar Renan, who was a skeptic, he, he said this, it may be that with the collapse of belief in the supernatural, there may come a collapse in the foundations of morality. He was not sure. Well, the last century and a half has certainly demonstrated that that is precisely what has happened. And with the demise of the belief in the supernatural, though there may be one or two people, or a few here and there, that try to maintain An ethical system, it's one thing is certain in society as a whole. With the belief in the supernatural, the whole ethical system slides down into the pit. And you know the the, uh, secular humanists have their own ethical system, which is all man-made. It's their own little bucket of worms that they want to dump off on the American public. We'll say a word about that in just a minute. And uh, fourthly, since there is no provident God to take care of people, they believe, of course, in the socialist state. And they've been teaching that to our young people in schools for 40 years. And so since there is no God who is a sovereign ruler of the world, they believe finally in a one-world government. Now, if they're consistent, that one-world government, which no doubt will grow out of the UN, is going to consist of socialistic, amoral, evolutionary atheists. And then the secular humanist millennium will have arrived. At that point, I shall request that they stop the world and let me off. A third and final disturbing trend today deals with the fact that the humanists are engaged in a legal revolution which has great significance to us as Christians. How many of you have heard the statement, you can't legislate morality? you believe that? Well, I want to ask you this, my friend. If you believe that, I would like to ask you this question. If you can't legislate morality, pray tell me, what can you legislate? It is illegal to murder because it is immoral to murder. It is illegal to commit incest because it is immoral. It is illegal to rape because it is immoral to rape. It is illegal to steal because it is immoral to steal. And anyone that knows anything at all knows that that's where laws come from. But you'll hear these people cry out, oh, we don't want any one religion telling, imp- imposing their morality on us in the form of legislation. Well, let's face it. This country was founded upon the morality of the Bible, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. James Madison, who had most to do with writing the Constitution, said it will be impossible to govern America without God and the Ten Commandments. We've come a long way, brother. Now the Supreme Court says you can't put the Ten Commandments up in the walls of the schools in Kentucky. Of course, they've got them carved in the wall of the Supreme Court. <laughs> they found Madeleine Murray up there with a sanding machine one day. But <laughs> Did you know there's an organization that has been founded for the purpose of restoring prayer and the Bible to the schools? That's its one great goal. You know the head of it is? Madeline Murray O'Hare's son. Praise the Lord. The Supreme Court says that uh, they can't have them up in the schools of Kentucky. You know, they have these these young, impressionable minds of these students who read those commandments. You know, I mean who knows what they might not do might not even mug their teachers <laughs> i suppose that they're safe in the supreme court those old guys are probably so hard hearted they're not going to be influenced by them at all <laughs> but there is an effort when they say that you can't they don't want one religion imposing its its morals on the country in form of legislation, what they don't tell you is what they really mean is they don't want Christians imposing their morality upon the country because the secular humanists are very busily engaged in imposing their morality on the country in the form of legislation. You see, the Bible was the foundation for the legislative enactments of this country. Every government that has ever existed has been based upon some theistic or anti-theistic view, either upon some religious view or some anti-religious view, such as communism. And uh, all legislation has grown out of those views, as it was true in this country. The legislation of this country was originally based upon the laws of the scripture. But now the Bible is being moved over, and in its place is coming the legislative, the, rather the ethical agenda of the secular humanists. Now, you want to know what that is? You'll see how far they have already succeeded in having this reproduced into law. Divorce on any ground, 37 states. Abortion on demand, anywhere in the country. Infanticide already being practiced in some large hospitals in this country. Pornography, gambling, the right of suicide, free sex between consenting adults of any type, homosexuality, euthanasia, and a few other squirmy things in their bucket. And all of these, they are busily engaged in having transformed from their so-called ethical agenda into legislation binding upon the people of America. So when they tell you they don't want one religion imposing its moral views on the country, you tell them that that is a lie. They do want one religion imposing its moral views on the country, and that is the religion of secular humanism. But unfortunately, most Americans have been sitting around like the proverbial frog in the pan of water which is being gradually heated without even realizing that it was going on. Some of them shouting loudly, well, you can't legislate morality. My friends, God wants us to subdue the world. He wants us to, to as salt and light, to influence every sphere of this world. He wants us to come off of the defense, to get out of our evangelical and pietistic ghettos. He wants us to attack the world. In all of its various spheres, Christians need to get out and have an influence on education and on government and politics and the media and art and everything else in this country. Christians need to make their voices heard. And they need to realize that in life, Their goal is to bring glory to God in every one of these spheres. Now these, I think, are the three points that are clearly taught in this cultural mandate. That we are to proclaim the gospel that people may be transformed into and by the further proclamation of the whole counsel of God, further transformed into the the image of God. That they are to be trained to be fruitful and multiply, that every Christian is to be a witness for Jesus Christ and we are to cover the earth with them. And thirdly, we are to subdue the world and have dominion over it. And uh, that we are to take all of the potentialities of it and offer them up to the glory of God. This, I believe, includes everything that God would have you, evangelical Presbyterians, to do as a church. If you get through by next week, I'll see if I can come up with something else. God bless you.